Welcome back to our fall study. <laughs> After our next summer study on uh, hell, yeah, how was that one? Um, we are continuing in our study, just just a little roadmap of where we hope they go with our studies. The reason I'm doing these particular studies, they're not like formal Bible studies at this point. I think next fall or, or in the springtime, if we finish this up. I'm planning on doing a, a, a Bible study through the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount, um, really as, as a way of discipleship, just especially because of the times we're living in as Christians. But the studies I wanted to focus on um, in, in the summertime and here in the fall are more, more like classes, I guess, because we talked about the doctrine of hell last time. The reason for this is because we're really kind of under attack as Christians, for real. And it's not just kind of the outlandish. Remember with the doctrine of hell? We have people within the church that are denying that teaching or twisting it a little bit. So we really wanted to make sure this is what the Bible actually teaches about hell, and that's how serious it is, and that's why Jesus came and did what he did. Another um, attack that's really coming on the church is against the scripture itself. And it's a very... I guess, sophisticated attack in some ways. It's not just like, hey, we're just, uh, you guys are just silly Christians reading your Bible. Go ahead. No, no, no. It's, it's a little, it's very different than that. So I want us to be prepared for when you talk to people um, and people bring these kinds of things up. You know, if they talk about hell and the reality of it, hopefully now you have some handles that you could grab onto and talk about from a biblical perspective. We want to do the same thing when it comes to the, the very essence, the very nature of Scripture itself. So that's what we're going to be doing uh, for uh, this this study in the fall. So let me pray, and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you so much, Lord. Just thank you for this time together. Thank you for bringing these folks out, Lord. And just pray that it's a that it's a, a time where you are honored and glorified, where we learn more about you and learn to depend on you, Lord God, and upon your word as we walk by faith in Christ Jesus. So I just pray that you would be with me to help me to be very clear and bring forth the truth, Lord God, and and um, help answer the challenges that are set before us as Christians and be with those, those, those of us receiving this teaching, Lord God, that we would be better equipped, that we would be stronger in our faith, Lord God, that we would know how to respond to these very serious objections to, to the faith. So Lord, please bless this time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right. Praise God. Okay. Here we go. So, like I said, why this kind of class? Um, because the scripture is under attack. It really is. And always has been and always will be. But it's not simply kind of like being ignored or, or like just written off like as a myth or fairy tale. What you guys believe as Christians is just, yeah, you believe in those miracles. You kind of believe in... You know, whatever, whatever's out there. You're very gullible people as, as Christians. Kind of a you know, normal reaction that we get that's thrown out towards our way. You know, believing in these things. Um, they've ramped that up. It's not even about uh, a lot of the attacks are talking about the inspiration of the Bible. Is it really God's word, or is it you know man and God's word together? Mostly God, some man, mostly man. Um, Questions about the inerrancy of Scripture. Isn't the Bible full of errors? That kind of thing. 
the, the sufficiency of Scripture. You know, we need more than just the Bible, don't we, to really know about life and how to get along in life. Those are more in-house kind of debates among Christians. And, you know, I know I hear the crickets. Crickets! <laughs> They're loud, actually. Um, but what's happening now, and it's really starting with the younger people. So I'm looking kind of in the back row and at, at Laney. In college and college campuses across our country and around the world, um, is the the idea of how do you even know? And this is kind of the question that's brought out by a lot of college professors in like biblical studies or world studies or history classes. How do you know what you're reading is what the writers actually wrote down? See? So the argument goes like this: You Christians. And just imagine yourself in a, in a classroom around this time of year in a college campus. And you have a professor like Bart Ehrman, who's down in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, saying something that you cannot know even what if what you're reading was written by the person you think wrote that Bible, that word. It goes like this. We cannot know what's written. Because we don't have, and this is what shocks a lot of people, we don't have the originals. How many of you knew that? That we don't have the originals. That is the autographs. We don't have, like when Paul wrote Romans, we don't have that actual writing that Paul wrote and that letter that Paul wrote and sent out. We don't have that. It's gone out of history. So and that's one thing, but we don't even have copy the first copies of that letter so when the letters would go out people and scribes and, and others would copy that letter and they would send it out and this is really really good in a couple of weeks because you're going to see how much we have we have so much by way of manuscripts and so forth but this is just a negative again you're in a classroom and you're hearing this say we don't even have copies of the original we don't have a copies of the copies or copies of the copies of the copies Okay? That's how far down the line is. So, for instance, the earliest manuscripts that we have, the earliest copies that we have from Scripture, are dated somewhere in the second century. Probably about, I mean, the, the lowest it could be is like 90 years from when Paul would have originally written Romans or when, when Scripture was written to 150 years. Now you see, does that shake you up a little bit if you don't know, like if you're coming in? I'm glad. <laughs> Your husband said no. It shouldn't. And, but a lot of kids, they go to college and they're like, what? And so if they're nominal Christians, if you hear that, we don't have those copies. So how could you know? How do you know what's written is actually what they wrote? All right? And that's a big question. That's, what, that's what's going on. Um, so it kind of rocks the world of a lot of people. Don, you're cool. <laughs> How could you believe? The argument goes on. Well, how could you believe or trust or rely on something like that where we don't have this? Now, how do we know that scribes didn't come along and change some things and, you know, write things that are different or add on or take away? You know, is it is it really God's word? It's like that game telephone. I guess if you're a little bit older, you know, that game, you start off, you tell somebody something by the time it goes around the room, it's something completely different. You know, or if I had... Um, a manuscript, a page of something, and I've asked a room full of people to write it down. You know, would it be the same? Would you get the same back? Mm, you know, 
probably close, but there will be some errors for sure. So this is a this has really rocked the, the world of a lot of Christians. Again, even those who, who trust in the Lord, not just kind of the nominal Christians or people really young in the faith, but really um, who, who are strong in their faith. So at least initially at Ross World. And again, I mentioned this gentleman's name. How many of you have heard of Bart Ehrman? He's kind of the foremost um, proponent of this in this area. He is, in 2005, he wrote a book. It's a bestseller, New York Times bestseller, called Misquoting Jesus, The Story Behind Who Changed the Bible and Why. He went on the Jon Stewart show. I don't know if you guys heard of Jon Stewart or know who he is. Talk show guy, popular with you know younger generations especially. After that, his book just shot thousands of copies sold, shot up the New York Times bestseller list. Bart Ehrman's a graduate from Wheaton College. And you're going to hear more and more about him as we go through this, as the studies. So get used to his name. Um, he was a professing Christian. He went to Moody Bible Institute. He went to Princeton Seminary, where this was his major, New Testament Biblical Criticism. He studied under Bruce Metzger. That name rings a bell with anybody. He's like the foremost textual scholar of our age. I mean, he and Armin was like his right, his protege. They wrote a book together. So, um, and he was Metzger was devastated when when um, Ehrman came out with this book. So, he went from Ehrman, kind of professing Christian, to agnostic, and now today he's atheist. But he's huge. He's he's um, powerful, popular. He's a bona fide critic. Like he's not some jokester. Like he's really he has the credentials. He really does, um, and he's. Very intelligent, and he debates Christians all the time, and you know, on these very things. Uh, very thing. You should listen. James White and Bart Ehrman had a, a really good debate on on this very thing. Um, he's currently a professor at North Carolina Chapel Hill, so he's, he's going. And there are others like him. So he's had a huge impact. I'm telling you, especially on younger people coming from this way. Um, genuine Christians have been rocked. It's kind of like having their foundation taken away, and he's there really no match for this professor who's who has that authority, who has the ability, who has the skills. So, I think it's uh, important for us. The goal of this class, at least this portion of this class, what we want to do is answer the question: Is what we have now what they had then when it was originally written? And we want to try to get back to that. So I'm gonna hopefully in the next couple of months really help us prepare to answer that and give good information and the answer is yes <laughs> by the way <laughs> but getting there we want to make sure we can get there um, it's going to begin with what you need to know concerning the nature of the bible that's what i want to do tonight it's going to be hopefully our class will be about an hour that's what i'm planning to be done around eight o'clock eight fifteen the latest i know it's getting a little late we're coming into the fall and everything so we want to try to keep it to that tonight could have been uh, one really, really long lesson. We're going to break it up to hopefully two more you know, manageable size lessons. But you're going to begin with what you need to know concerning the nature of Scripture. These are going to be your handles. So you're always going to come back to this because when we get into the actual criticism, it's going to be difficult at times. It's going to seem, oh my gosh, really? I don't know. You know it, it might shake us up a little bit. But always come back to this. First of all, um, the Scripture... It's not like any other book. Here's what you need to remember. It's not like any other book. Not only is it God, God's breathed out word, it is God's word, 
but it has also been supernaturally preserved by the Holy Spirit. And that's always the ace in the hole for us because it's the truth. It's what the scripture teaches. And there's a lot of evidence for that. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about tonight. Some of that evidence, how the Bible shows that it's truly the word of God. These are the handles you're going to hold on to. When you start getting worried and saying, oh man, is this, can I really trust God's word? Can I really trust this? I mean, can I know that you know Peter really wrote what we have under you know, First and Second Peter? So um, these are the things, characteristics that show it improves God. We will talk about next time, not in depth, but at least give definitions of inspiration, infallibility, inerrancy, and sufficiency, because that's very important for us. This is our grounding. This is the ground level for us. We don't. We're not going to leave this when we're tempted, you know, to or when the information comes after us, at us. Um, also, the more sure word. We're going to do a short exposition of Second Peter one sixteen through twenty one, and we'll try to get that in next week as well. Because Peter talks about even though Peter saw Christ was with Christ was on the mount where Christ was transfigured. And, and came down, Peter still says, trust the more sure, trust the word. The word is more sure than even eyewitness testimony. It's, it, it, this is what needs to be trusted more than anything else. So we'll talk about that. But just to get you familiar with, um, on your outline under number four, the New Testament textual criticism, a brief definition. What does that mean? It sounds technical. It is very technical. <laughs> it is deep. We're... We're going to be surface, a little below the surface with this, but you can go much, much deeper, and I'll give you resources for that because it's important to know. New textual, textual criticism is the study of the copies of any written document whose original, the original is called the autograph, is unknown and non-existent for the primary purpose of determining the exact wording of the original. So, listen, all ancient books... None of the original copies exist. So if you, Plato, Aristotle, ancient history books, Tacitus, Josephus, none of the originals that they wrote have, and none of the copies were found until hundreds and hundreds of, hundreds of years after. That's going to be a big deal for us. We're going to talk about later. So the New Testament has tons and tons of manuscripts that are really, really close to when the actuals were written to get back to it. But we trust Josephus. You read Plato, yeah, okay, that's, you, you read the other histories. And there's reasons to trust that, even though that's not the originals, because they're proven by archaeology, they're proven by, as we look back in history, as things are discovered. You know, so, yeah, that's, these are, you know, the burning of Rome, it really happened. Okay, that kind of thing. So, does that make sense so far? Is that good? So, yeah, that's kind of our light at the end of the tunnel as well. But the object or the objective of textual criticism is to examine the copies, to check out the copies in order to get back to the originals. That's what we want to do. We want to get back to what Paul actually wrote. Textual criticism is necessary. It has to be done. It's got to be done because we don't have the autographs. It would be great. If we had the originals, that's it. There'd be no need. That's one reason. The second reason is that no two manuscripts, no two copies are the same. If we had a copy that was exact, you know, or two copies that were exact, or copies that matched up perfectly, then there would be no need for textual criticism to try to get back. The problem is, even with the copies, there's some different wording, errors in spelling, 
and then maybe some more errors where a scribe might have added a word in and so on and so forth. So, you know, we want to... So, for instance, there's two big parts of Scripture, <laughs> portions of Scripture that we believe are called variants that weren't in the original. Do you guys? Can you guys think of any of them? One's in Mark and one's in John. I'll give you that much. Variants. They're the two biggest variants in the Bible. That's that... They don't match up with the earliest manuscripts and things that are found. The long ending of Mark. We'll be talking about that. I'm just mentioning that tonight. So the ending of Mark, I forget what verse it ended at. And then there's later manuscripts that came along have more to it. And the woman caught in adultery. And that is a pericope that's not in the earliest manuscripts. It doesn't match like John's writing or the writing that's there. Really, really interesting. And also in Revelation, what's the number, what's the mark of the beast? 666. Okay, most, we'll talk about this. They don't have a lot of manuscripts from Revelation. They have the the, the least amount. But it's really interesting because two of the earliest manuscripts that they found, two of the earliest copies of Revelation don't have 666. They have 661. <laughs> That's his neighbor. It's the guy down the street. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that would be something to really... See, these are... And you have to decide, because we want to get back to the original. Now, does that mean these aren't? this isn't the Word of God? No, by no means. I could tell you this. No doctrine, no essential doctrine whatsoever is affected by any of these variants that we find that we'll go through. But that's a, a couple of weeks down the road. So, but that's that's new to, it's really fascinating. It's a really cool uh, area. We don't think much about it and we just look at the scripture, but there's a lot that goes into that. So we're going to be looking at that. Then also, after the New Textual Criticism, we're going to talk a little bit about the canon. That's the, the books of the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And that's kind of where our study is going to focus on. We can't do the whole thing. It would just be too involved, too much. Beyond me, for sure. Um, New Testament canon, how did we get the Bible? In other words, how do we know which books belong in the New Testament? You know, how do, That's another area where people really come, oh, it wasn't until Constantine. Oh, it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea. Oh, it was 400 years later that they put these Bible books in here, you know, written by men. Is that, is that how we got the Bible? Is that how we got the... You know, these books, these particular books, what's the criteria for these books to be in here? So that's the New Testament canon. How do we know which books are to be included and which books are not? How many of you have heard of the Gospel of Thomas? We'll do a study on the Gospel of Thomas. We'll spend maybe a half a class on that because that's a big deal. Why isn't Thomas included or these other Gospels um, on, on different kinds? But we'll do Thomas in particular because that is a popular one. Um, did the church decide, did some church council decide which books are to be in the Bible, or did the church simply receive and recognize the canon? That's the right answer, by the way, but uh, we'll talk about that. If we have time, we'll talk about the Apocrypha, the Apocryphal books, um, and then also Bible translations. This is I don't know if we'll have time to do this by our break time. We'll see. Um, what difference, what's the difference in translations, translations, methodology, philosophy, style. So what's different about the NIV as opposed to the ESV, as opposed to the NLT, as opposed to the King James Version, and why are there different translations, and does it make a difference, and is one better than the other, and can can we, you know, should any be trashed? It's, yeah, it's a big deal. Well, what about, like, you know, the 
after 95 or, or 84 NIV, some changes that were made, can you trust the NIV these days? It's, you know, a lot of them are going, different translations are really becoming inclusive and they're, uh, what are they doing with the pronouns? He, him, he, she, they're, they're doing, they're, yeah, they're meddling for sure. But anyway, if we get to that, well, we'll try to in that way. So, um, the Word of God. What I want to do tonight, very hopefully quickly and succinctly, I'm taking this from the Westminster Larger Catechism. It's one of the most comprehensive answers. You have it on your outline on how does it appear that the Scripture is the Word of God. It's Westminster Larger Catechism number four, and I love this answer. It says, the Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God. How? By their majesty, by their purity, by the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But, and here it is, the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man is alone able to fully persuade it that they are the very Word of God. So, it comes down to the Holy Spirit convicting our hearts. We could bring forth the evidence, but unless the Holy Spirit shows you and teaches you and convinces you that it's the Word of God, you're probably going to doubt and say, I don't know. I don't really know. You know we have family and friends, and, and they really, really <coughs> trust the Bible. They really believe the Bible. So, um, and that's, that's what we need to understand. On the second page of your outline, just start off with a quote. Did I have? Oh, no. Did I put the C.S. Lewis quote down for you guys? I'm sorry. Oh, it's above. Oh, okay. Okay. Poof. Okay. So when you think about the Word of God, and this is just so good. This is from C.S. Lewis. And I love this because he says the miraculous, when the miraculous occurs, it's still, um, when the miracle enters our world, the, the nature of miracles becomes... Inter, interacted with our reality as well. So in other words, look, look, at the, look at the quote. When a miracle enters our world, miraculous wine will intoxicate. You're still going to get drunk. Even the wine that Jesus turned in, water into wine, it's still going to get you drunk if you drink enough of it, right? Uh, miraculous conception. The virgin birth. She's still pregnant. She still leaves the womb. There's going on the development in the womb for those months, and then it's going to be brought forth. Lewis says, the inspired books will suffer ordinary processes of textual corruption. So when people start copying, you are going to have, so people are going to think, if this is not, like Bart Ehrman says, if you, if there's one error in here, it can't be God's word because he's holy and he's righteous, and he can't let that corruption happen in any way. If there's any error, if there's any you know, inconsistent in word, then it can't be the word of God. Then it's not fully inspired. How can we know? When we say, like, when we talk about um, inspiration, yeah, God, led by, by his grace, they wrote down what God wanted them to write down. He superintends over his word. But there's still men who are writing, right? Their personalities come through. And sometimes when people copy, you are going to make mistakes in, in, in certain areas. And you might be tempted to maybe put something here to make it more clear, that kind of thing. So we'll talk about that. Um, he says, miraculous bread will be digested, right? People that were healed still got sick. People that were raised from the dead, they still died. So it's those, those kinds of things. It doesn't mean that they weren't miracles or miraculous or couldn't be trusted. 
So just, I, I really like that quote as we get into it. So, I love Catechism number four. The Bible itself proves that it's the Word of God. So this is its internal testimony, but it, it's outward. The Bible's like no other book ever, ever, ever. God breathed, superintend, superintends over it. So they do such a nice job. It says the majesty of the Scriptures. Right? It shows us that it's what the Scriptures manifest themselves. They show us that it's the Word of God by their majesty and their purity. So what's the majesty of Scripture? And it's just the idea that it's lofty and wonderful in character, that it lifts it above all other human writings. In other words, check this out. Compared to the Bible, and this is how we can know, this is what we want to hold on to, because we could talk about inspiration, infallibility, inerrancy, the nature of Scripture, but to know that it shows itself and this is where our faith rests in, how it manifests. Look what the Bible has done. Look what it shows about itself. All of the writings, if you think about it, every other writing is derivative from Scripture. Think of any story you want, any movie you want, anything like that. What's usually the plot of any movie, any book, any story? What do you have? Like a problem, an issue, of like a fallenness, right? And then you always have a savior, Figure, you know, even if it's twisted, even even if it's anti-savior, it doesn't matter. It's still this kind of thing. Everything comes. They have to borrow from the scripture even to make sense of anything. So you have a savior figure in every show, every movie, every book that you read, and you have some sort of redemption that takes place. Some sort, something happens. That, okay, that this is, person's been redeemed in this way, and this is what this person sacrificed himself and did something. Like, there's always that hero in that movie giving themselves or doing whatever they do. And then there's a consummation. There's a consummation to it. They all lived happily ever after type of thing. There's, a, there's an ending to it. For the most part, you see? So, so everything's derivative from Scripture. Even nonfiction. Even things like in history, like history books. Do you know, one time, scholars believed, foremost scholars believed, that the Bible couldn't be true because... Of a, of a nation called the Hittites. How many of you have heard the Hittites when you've read the Old Testament? Bible can't be true. There were never these people. There's not one shred of evidence. Not one shred of evidence of these Hittites. Oh, it was a famous... Oh, ah, his name's escaping me now. But even the archaeologists, you know, they, they can't be. So that means your Bible is wrong. Well, I forget how many years after that statement was made, archaeologists were digging around and they uncovered... The whole civilization of the Hittites. I get chills with that because it's like it's like one of the most well-known, understood now, um, and finds antiquity people of of all history. The Hittites did exist. See, the Bible always proves itself to be true. There's not been one shred of evidence that's ever gone against that's contradicted what the scripture said. Every time archaeologists find something, it actually proves what the Bible says. They don't just, you know, it's hard to, they, didn't they just find something, um, the pool of uh, Siloam. Siloam. They found the pool of Siloam. And, yeah, so, yeah, where Jesus healed the blind man. Again, chills. Because we feel, oh, that doesn't happen. Everything, not one thing, not one time, has, believe me, you wouldn't know if they found something that went against scripture. It's all derivative. Scripture accounts for everything. The Bible is transcendent and always relevant. It is always relevant. It's not simply a historical book. Like, it doesn't get old. It's a book that's always present. It's always present and it's always pertinent at the time. 
it doesn't tell us just what happened, like, oh, this is what, what happened in the past, but it tells us what always happens, all the time. So, like, like um, Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. If you read scripture, if you didn't know better, the same sins that were being committed in the days of Noah are the same sins that are being committed today. Because times change, but the human heart stays the same, and scripture speaks to that. So it's always relevant. I mean, we're going through Romans, man, and it's just like, you know, Romans 1, right? Every single chapter, and it's just like, this is today. Okay, it was written 2,000 years ago, whatever, in that way. Always. And if you go back to the old time, always. So it's always present. It doesn't just tell us what happened, but what always happens. When you read it, it reads you. It tells you about yourself. It tells you whether you believe it or not. But it tells you about yourself, that you are a sinner, that it accounts for your sinfulness. It accounts for your need. It shows you what you are, and it shows you the way of salvation. It reads you as you actually read it. It explains the way things really are and why that's so. So it, tell, it, it forms our worldview. And only a biblical worldview is consistent with the way things really are in life, the way things really happen, why people do the things that they do, why things happen the way that they happen. It doesn't simply describe truth. It defines truth. So it, it's definitional. If you want to know truth, you need to know the scripture. This is the grounding where truth is because it comes from God's nature and God's character. And it will always be true whether you deny it or not. A man will always be a man. A woman will always be a woman no matter what you try to do. You can try to deny it, but the Bible is the is the very essence of truth. It defines what truth is. It always does. See, it's a transcendent book. This is the majesty of Scripture. And it's always true in this way. It teaches us about God, about creation, about man, sin, salvation, death, life, etc. And let's just talk about death for one minute. Is death natural or not? No. No. It's not natural. Talk to a naturalist, talk to a person that believes in evolution, and they will tell you, yes, death is natural. It's a natural, things die all the time. Things die all the time. So it's a natural thing. But, but, if that's true then, if it's just natural, why do you mourn when people die? Why are you so sad when people die? Why are you so afraid of dying if it's just natural? Because it's not. It's, it's a, we could tell you that. So the Bible's majestic. It tells us that death is not natural. It's a consequence of sin, and it's a penalty for sin. That's why we mourn. That's why we get so sad when somebody dies, and it's so tragic. If you're an evolutionist, if you're just you know part of a scum thing, just over time, <laughs> chance, and you coming, who cares? But you're made in the image of God. And death, and this is just one little example, but it's a powerful one. But that's why I could tell you why you mourn. I could tell you why you're sad when you lose a loved one. I could tell you why you cry. I could tell you why there's sorrow. I could tell you why there's pain, because it's not natural. I could tell you why you're afraid of it, because it's not natural. I could tell you how to avoid it, too. <laughs> we could tell them that, right? So that's why people try to minimize it. In our day and age, death is minimized so much. Right? Even when we were growing up, you would go to the cemetery, you'd go to the graveyard. It's not even called that anymore. What's it called? Memorial Park. 
<laughs> we don't have tombstones anymore with names. But that's so nice up there. Jefferson Memorial It's beautiful. It's like, like a picnic place. Because they don't want to be reminded of death. Which we need to be reminded of and, and understand. That's why you have the, you know, we don't, the funerals today. I know they say it's because it's so expensive. But there's nothing. When we were growing up, you had a week-long funeral. If you were Italian like we, we had almost two weeks. Every night going in. Not two weeks. About a week. No, but you had visitations for three or four days and nights. And then the funeral itself. But you wanted an open casket because that's what death is. That's what death is. No more, man. Now it's just, they don't even call it funerals. They call it celebration of life. And, you know. Not mourning the death. So, but I'm just saying, this is what God's majestic word teaches us about this. And one more thing about death. The other, today, I was in the backyard and I smelled something dead, rotting away. So that, that stench of death tells us something's wrong. It's not sweet. Do you ever smell like a dead carcass? I never smelled like human. <laughs> but deer, right? That stench? You think of a good fellow? <laughs> He's watching out the car. <laughs> um, but that's you know, it's even that tells us that something's not right. So th- I'm just using this as an example. You cannot rightly view reality apart from Scripture. That speaks to the majesty of it. You can't make sense of anything ultimately. You have to borrow everything, even the scientist, even the mathematician. They're, they're discovering the mind of God when they discover how the world works. They can just, oh, wow, evolution did this? Okay. Right. So, no, no. There's something behind that. Everything. Even, even you know, two plus two. Well, again, see, the farther away you get from God, the sillier we become. So now little kids, my daughter was told, if a child thinks two plus two is five, you say, okay, you're right. Right, Leela? Or something like that. <laughs> it's close to being that. So, um, Apart from the Bible, we cannot really answer the why question, ultimately. Why? Why, why, why? As Christians, we can tell you why. Now, you might not believe it, you might not like it, but we can tell you why. And it fits, it comports with the way things are. That's the majesty of Scripture. That's how it reveals itself. This is the handle we hold on to when you're going to start doubting and saying, oh man, I wonder if this really is God's Word. It is. Secondly, he says the purity of Scriptures. Um, their character. The character is... The true word of God. God is pure. Everything he speaks is pure. There's no impurities. There's no defilement in any way. So scripture is wholly free from errors in the originals. Okay, and we're going to talk about that when we get to inspiration. To follow them, if you follow scripture, you're following the truth and you're following righteousness. They never, this is the purity of God's word. It's pure. It's pure. It's not defiled. It has no impediments in it. In it. Impediments? Is that the right word? Nothing that defiles it. They never lead you astray. If you follow other books, and I don't care what other book it is, it could be the Quran, it could be the Bhagavad Gita, it could be any other book, it's going to lead you astray and away from God, and you're going to do things that are inconsistent with God's way for us. Understand? When you follow Scripture, you will never be led astray. You're never encouraged to sin in any way. You're never um, encouraged to do wrong in your behavior. It's undefiled, unfiltered truth. So there's a purity to God's word, and that teaches us that. Okay? Teaches us this. It's the Christian who cares. So 
if you go to a Muslim nation and you're a Christian and you're witnessing and they find out what's going on over in certain countries right now, to, in, in Africa, right now, right now today, where Christians, because, oh, I forget what it was, they denounced the Quran or whatever they did, the Muslims are going in. Have you read this? Have you seen? They're going in and they're burning and they're killing and they're raping and they're destroying, okay? In the name of God. See, you could do what you want to, to Christians. You could take their books, you could take it, and we will still love you and we will still pray for you and we will still seek to win you to Jesus Christ. Because it doesn't, if you're consistent with Scripture, the purity of Scripture never leads us to sin. The consent of all the parts. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. No true contradictions in Scripture. Now, we're going to talk about this. Oh, there's contradictions, perceived contradictions, but there are no true contradictions in Scriptures. All the parts of the Bible form a unity. It's beautiful. When you read the Bible from beginning to end, you see an unfolding of redemptive history, an orderliness to it. It's not just jointed. Have, have, have any of you tried to read the Quran? I have. It's so confusing and it doesn't flow and it's not like a, a beginning, middle, end or a story that unfolds and blooms. It's very confusing and a saying here and a saying there and it's not, it's hard to, to, to really understand. Same with the Book of Mormon. Very confusing and very contradictory in many different ways. Uh, it, doesn't con- it doesn't flow. There's no, it doesn't hold together. But when you read the scriptures, you see it from beginning to end. There's a purpose and it finds its fullest fulfillment in Jesus Christ and then in the consummation. But we, we see God's purpose and plan coming to fruition. So um, Ken Ham, how many of you have heard Angels of Genesis? They like the seven seas. The seven seas, I kind of like that. There's different ways you could talk about this, uh, of God's continuity of, of scripture, the consent of all the parts. But they have seven. Creation, God created all things. Corruption, that's the fall into sin. Catastrophe, am I going too fast? I should have wrote all these down for you. Rats, I was lazy. I just left After it. Corruption? Creation, corruption, catastrophe, that's the flood. These are all, you know, confusion. And that's at the Tower of Babel. And that explains why we have different peoples, different languages, because at the Tower of Babel, people were scattered, right? I'm going to confuse their language, too. Um, Number five is Christ. That's the incarnation. Number six, the cross, and that's redemption. And number seven is consummation, and that's the return and the renewal of all things. So creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, cross, consummation. And, and all this goes back even to, to the first 11 chapters in Genesis because you have the promise, the fall of mankind and the promise of salvation in Christ. So that's it. And that's what the Bible is. It's the unfolding. You have the line of Christ, the people of Christ, all these things leading up to Jesus. Augustine said this, that the new is concealed. I'm sorry. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. So... It is the word of God from beginning to end. And I love that. So the New Testament, what's written in the New, is concealed in the Old. The Old is revealed in the New as it comes to fruition. Uh, promise and fulfillment. You have the promise of Genesis 3.15. It's a beautiful promise, right? That the seed of the woman would destroy the serpent, 
his heel would be bruised, but he would crush his head. Where does that take place? Where's the fulfillment? With Jesus on the cross, it is finished. It is done. So promise, fulfillment, you have that. Types, shadows, events, all those things in the Old Testament. So what was the greater picture, the greatest purpose of the Passover and the Passover lamb? Who was that ultimately pointing to? Who was our... Yeah, don't you love that? They would take that innocent lamb, slit his throat, take the blood, pour it over the homes of God's people, being covered by the blood, death would pass over. Okay? Ultimately, it's Jesus Christ, who, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul calls him the, the Lamb of God in, in 1 Corinthians. He's the one whose blood covers our sin, death, Passover, as we live. So, so you see that the, the temple itself, what did, who did the temple, what did every aspect of the temple represent? Jesus Christ. How do we know that? What did Jesus say in John chapter 2? Tear this temple down and in three days I'll build it back up. How can you took 46 years? No, no, no. He was talking about himself. Because everything about the temple, from the priest to the sacrifice to the instruments to the Holy of Holies, picture Jesus Christ. So the people of the Old that's how it flows together. So we look back. The Old Testament's not something, oh, that was old. We have the new. No, no, no. That's how we understand. That's what Augusta was saying. Uh, the prophecies. We could be here all night talking about the prophecies, especially pointing to Jesus Christ. Prophecies near, far, those still to come. We see them taking place. So just think of Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. We can go on and on. Psalm 16. All these prophesied towards Jesus Christ, where he's going to be born, right? Who he was. Isaiah said all these, all these six, all these prophecies that point to Christ or find the reality in Christ. I do want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. And remember, all we're doing now, this is just our grounding. This is what we're going to run back to when you start to doubt, when you start to think maybe this isn't. But go to Luke chapter 24, and I want to read what we are talking about here. And this is after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus. You had the two men walking. And they're walking along. I'm not going to read all of it just because of time, but um, Jesus came alongside them and they, and they had lost hope. Let's just start in 20. You know, our chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did. Um, but him they did not see. And then Jesus said to them, "Oh, foolish of foolish ones, slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken." And there are the prophecies. And look at verse 26. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And then verse 27. And beginning with Moses. Those are the first five books. All the prophets, he interpreted to them interpreted to them all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. Do you see that? Jesus himself is going back 
all the consent of all the parts. This was speaking to me. He was teaching them from the Old Testament about himself, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Then later on, he says this in verse 44. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the Old Testament. All these things must be fulfilled. All those things were written about him. If Jesus isn't true, if Jesus Jesus is lying about this, then we should just throw our Bibles away for real because we can't trust it. But what he's doing is he's showing us that all the scriptures, the consent of all the parts, the consent of all the parts show us that it's God's word. How can that be? How can that happen like that? That everything happens, it builds up and culminates to that point where he's crucified on Calvary. Just think of everything that had to take place. Everyone that had to live. Jacob, Esau, I've loved all the decisions that went into that. Personal decisions. Major decisions made by people. Everything that went into that in God's providence was a fulfillment of scripture. So it shows us that. Not to mention the genealogies. That's why they're boring and they're long, but they tell us that you could trace it. These are real people in time and space and history. They go all the way back to to uh, Adam and then all the way back to Abraham that show us this is where Jesus came from. And it's confirmed how he preserved the line of this people, how that person lived so the line could go on, right? Even when they were in Egypt. You see all of this taking place. The law of God, the law that he's given to us. Um, The purpose of the law shows us that continuity. The law was given to us to show us our sin, primarily to show that we can't keep it. It's also given to restrain evil and then to guide us as his people. So we have all of these things um, that show the consent of all the parts. So very important to hold on to. It's supernatural. This just couldn't happen by chance, by luck, happenstance. Good thing. A good thing that um, David became king and that's all messed up, right? Good thing. You know, that, that kind of thing. All, all along, we could talk about that. Good thing that Joseph, that, you know, Abraham's or Jacob's family didn't die because of the famine. Good thing, right? That shows that God is keeping them. That's the, the consent of all the parts. It goes together. It flows together. And then finally, the last thing for tonight, and then we'll pick up um, next week with the rest of, of, of the definition the scope of the whole. So what's the Bible all about ultimately? We know in, in terms of redeeming, uh, you know, Christ showing redemption. But the scope of the whole, the purpose of the Bible, as it says here, is to give all glory to God. What other book that you know of gives all glory to God in any way? That manifests the glory of God, that shows us Everything from creation. If we want to talk about the Psalms, you know, Psalm 8, Psalm 148, how creation worships, worships God. They do his will. The winds work his will. They, they, um, nature works for him. He sends out the ravens to feed the prophet. He, whatever he does, nature obeys his command. Um, and they give glory to God. The purpose of the Bible is to give all glory to God. He reveals himself, his power through the scripture, his majesty, his nature, his works, creation to redemption, his attributes that we talked about before, loving, almighty, holy, just, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, infinite, eternal, unchangeable God. This is what comes through when we read the scripture. This is what God teaches 
us and reveals himself to us about himself through the word of God. And we see it true. Mere human writings always give ultimate glory and credit to man himself and, and rob it, take it away from God. God receives all the glory. He receives glory because the Bible teaches of the way of salvation for which he receives all glory. To show how men ought to live their lives, even in society, so as to be most fair, most just, most orderly to the benefit at all. And I'm just going to end here tonight as we talk about this. The scope of the whole gives glory to God. And you can see that. And I think it's very evident in our day as well as we have gone from what many would say Judeo-Christian ethic and society to a secular materialistic society which we're in right now and we're living through that transformation if you're older like us we're, we see it happen you guys are living right through it right now you can probably remember a little bit but um, how it was but in history and throughout history even beginning with Israel I'm not comparing us with Israel but I'm just saying nations that were grounded in this book or grounded in this book as a foundation are always the most free, the most humane, the most orderly, the most fair, the safest, the most advanced, the most caring, the most giving. As they are founded on these scriptures, all to the glory of God, because you're living closer to how he would have you live. So even the deists knew that when they founded this country. They, they didn't believe how we believe in the Lord, but they still knew there was a God, a creator, and when we abide by his laws, his ordinances, his statutes, things will go better. Right? And that's how we were. And this is what's so sad even about our nation today because we've lost that. We were grounded in that. So we were free. Why do you think everybody wanted to come to the United States? Because it was freedom. You go live in those regimes. You think, oh, the United States is terrible. We're this, we're that. We're racist, we're hateful. We're not without sin. We're no perfect nation. Absolutely not. But go to any other nation, most any other nation, that does not, or especially a communist or Marxist nation, and you'll see that you're not free. Right? You owe everything to your leaders. The most orderly when there's order, and that's law-abiding too, you would feel safe. There was a time we felt relatively safe. Who feels safe today? Not many. You know? You're going to keep your doors unlocked <laughs> at night? Do you feel free doing that, safe doing that? There was a time not too long ago where there was relative. Again, there was always, I'm not paying a panacea. I'm not doing that at all. But generally speaking, where we were safe. That there was law-abiding citizens, people who cared to uphold the standards, the civil standards, the, the, the uh, social standards of the community as well. People used to be ashamed and embarrassed to dress certain ways, to do certain things. Now they're glorying in that. See, when you take God out of that, the, the um, modesty is gone and the shame is gone. Right? So they glory in their shame. Hey, I'm going to do the way I want. I'm going to dress the way I want. The safety is not the same. And then it also infiltrates even on the higher levels. You, you begin getting corrupt, more corrupt politicians and more corrupt law enforcement. 
so nobody cares. That's why we never wanted to go down to Mexico because if you go down there and get pulled over for not speeding, but if you give the guy 50 bucks, he'll let you go, right? If you give the officer, that's not justice, that's not law. But it's, it's like those kinds of things are, when you get away from God, see this, the scope is the whole to give glory to God and when we, when we abide by that, you will see these kinds of things, these gifts, fairness in the courts, justice, impartiality, for the most part. Again, there's always going to be corruption, but for the most part. That, why do you think we have three branches of government? Because they knew the human heart. <laughs> we're going to watch out for you guys, and we're going to watch out for you guys, and there's checks and balances because we know how evil and corrupt we could be. And this is a wonderful biblical idea. You know, you're not you're not taking the word of one person, two or three witnesses, accountability, fairness in that way. Impartiality. The Bible says whether it's a big rich person or the poorest of poor person, you do not show partiality. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, for a bribe you can get anything. Partiality all all, all along, you know, if you're happen to be a conservative or something, and you do something relatively minor, you'll get the maximum sentence. You could be somebody who's more extreme or Marxist. They can do whatever they want to do, and they won't even be tried. It's just the truth. You can walk into the store, steal things, and you can just walk out. This is what we're living in right now. Because the scope of the whole is to give glory to God. And when we live by this, He is glorified in that. Advanced so much of our advancement in this country is because there was godly scientists who wanted to learn Harvard, Yale, Princeton. They were all, all of them were, were Calvinistic schools. They were founded by Christians to teach men to learn more about God and how to live in God's world. That's what these were for, to train up honorable men to, to, to make it a better place with the science, the advancements, so the glory of God. Most scientists early on were Christians. wasn't, um, what's his name? At least were very... Religious, but ah, I'm trying to. Yeah, Sir Isaac Newton. You know, these, these guys were, were discovering God's laws and um, implementing them for the advancement, for the betterment of society. Who cared more about the sick and the and the, and the hurting? You still go to other other nations, other countries. Remember, everybody would want to come to the United States to get health care. Why? Because the Christians cared. If you go back, what were the hospitals' names? If you're a little bit older, growing up, what were the names of the hospitals? St. Mary's, St. Joseph's, St. Presbyterian. If you want to get the Protestants in on it, you know, you can yeah, do. My Catholic. I know. Me too. Me too. I'll say, you know, all the saints. You know, I'll say, you know, uh, still St. Clair, all right? Because it was the Christians that cared about the image of God and preserving life and doing all they could to do what they could do to help life. So that's why. It's not just because, oh, we're, what made us like that? It's the scriptures. Since we've gone away from the scriptures, I'm afraid to go to healthcare now, practically. It's all about the moolah. It's all about, you know, this and the insurance and the just terrible health. Remember when the doctor used to come to your house? You're old enough to remember that? Yeah. I was just old enough. I mean, just. <laughs> I'm a little. But, you know, he would actually come to your house. Five now, hours. five bucks. Now, try to, see, try to see your primary. Go ahead. Yeah. You're going to get a. <laughs> You know, um, the practitioners, right? You're not going to get your primary anymore. I'm just saying, these are the kinds of things that we had as those advancements. Who gave more whenever there's any kind of um, outreach or, or, or tragedy, natural disaster than the U.S.? The Red Cross, Salvation Army, 
All these things are, are Christian organizations that gave mercifully. The shelters opened up for people. All these, it comes from glorifying God as Christians. So I'm just using this as a big example for you. Because the scope of the whole is to give glory to God. The purpose of the Bible is to do that. And when we abide by scripture, you see these kinds of things. And when you don't, when you take the scriptures out, you see just the opposite. And we're in a place where you see the opposite. Selfish, self-centeredness, self-serving, greed, pleasure-seeking, immodest, not caring, me, my own, mine. You know, if I want it, I'm going to take it and breaking it. But the government's corrupt on so many levels. You can't trust. Do you trust your government? Do you trust the news? Can we really, to be honest, to be fair, to be right? Why? Because we've gotten rid of God and we're not glorifying him. All these kinds of things point to the nature of scripture. And I'm saying this tonight and then we're going to pick up next week because it does more than that. Um the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God by their light and power to convince and convert sinners to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. So we'll talk about that next week and then get into an inerrancy and so forth. But again, I'm laying the foundation because when the textual criticism comes and they say, what you have, you don't know. You can't know. Well, we can know. We can know. We do know. From the textual criticism, but also how the Bible manifests itself because of the reality of it and the way that that when nations take hold of this, you see transformation. When people take hold of this, you see transformation in their lives. And you see that in, in everything we, we talked about tonight. The majesty, purity, consent of all the parts, scope of the whole. So that's, not, that's it for tonight. Any questions or comments on this? If you want to push back, now's your time. Okay? All right. The Bible proves it. But get this down because you're going to want to go back and hold on to this when we talk about when people come in and say, Paul didn't write that. How do you know? We don't have any of the originals. Okay? So, this is what we're doing. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you again so much for this. Just the beauty of your word. It is living. It is active. It's sharper than an two-edged sword, Lord. It pierces us. Bone in the marrow, Lord God. It truly is. It's always relevant. It's always purposeful, Lord. It's always valid. It is the source of truth and life, Lord God. So we thank you and praise you for your precious word. We know the attacks are coming upon scripture. We know those who do not believe scripture see us as foolish for believing your word, Lord God. But we see the power of your word. We see, Lord God, how the nature of your word, how it manifests itself, how transcendent it is. The things we talked about tonight, the things we didn't even mention, Lord, tonight, like how how widely distributed the, the, the Bible itself is, the most read book in all the world of all time, Lord God, and, and how we've seen people, persons, families, communities, nations transformed by the power of your word, Lord, because of your majesty and glory. So we just pray that we are grounded in this, that we will never forget that you, it is your word, and you supernaturally superintend over it, Lord God. So there might be areas even when we do not understand because of our limits, the limits of our own abilities, Lord God, but we see and we know and we understand because you have said it to be so and you've been gracious enough to show us your word and the power of your word 
Lord God. So we thank you and praise you. And I pray that we would love your word, that we would have the desire to know your word, to read your word, Lord God, to seek to obey by your spirit, your precious word, and to never, ever doubt, no matter what the critics may say. Because we know, Lord God, that they do not want it to be true. Because if it is true, they know their own fate, apart from faith in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we thank you and praise you. I thank you for bringing the folks out tonight. ask your blessing upon the rest of this evening. Pray that you would see us safely to our homes and be with our families apart from us. In Jesus' name, amen.